Well, when I look out on this room, I see faces, many, many faces, and, and I know names. And names are not just words, but names are, are vessels. And names are vessels for stories. And I see hundreds of stories here this morning. Stories of heartache and stories of healing. And today, as we start this Advent season, we have heard a list of names from the Gospel of Matthew. But this is not merely a list of names. This is a catalog of stories. Stories that are filled to the brim with tears and loss, and loaded up with hope and redemption. There is so much gospel, there's so much good news hidden here in this genealogy of Jesus. There is so much loss found in these stories. There is so much new life that comes out of those losses. This is a genealogy of loss, but a genealogy of new life. And it's one that I sense that we need to hear again and spend some time reflecting on this, this year. Because you might say that this year's Christmas is something of a hard year's Christmas. It's been a hard year. It's, it's been a hard two years, hasn't it? It seems like we need Christmas now more than, more than ever. I can't help but to think of Narnia and that famous line from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Where Mr. Tumnus says, it's winter in Narnia and it has been forever so long. Always winter and never Christmas. When I read those chilling words when I was uh, just a kid, um, I remember I had somehow a sense of their, of their meaning. And today we hear them and I think we have a sense of their deep meaning. Always winter, never Christmas. There is a kind of winter There is a kind of coldness to the world that needs Christmas to come and break the chill with the warmth of a baby's breath. There's the the need for a hope of new life entering into the messy middle of it all. There's an ache and there is a sadness to being um, in a broken world. And we need a redeeming newness. And that is exactly what Christmas brings. Christmas has come, the winter sorrow, the winter of ache, of loss, it will not always be. And so this year, as we journey through the Advent season, what we will be doing is looking at the first couple chapters of the Gospel of Matthew and see how, out of loss, God brings new life. Out of loss, God brings new life. He brings new light. He brings new love. And it's, it's easy to forget, I think, um, that the Christmas story is not all silver bells and, and shining packages and, and bright lights. There are dark shadows here, aren't there? There are dark shadows. And it's impossible to properly, I'll qualify it, it's impossible to properly tell the Christmas story without addressing the darkness. The world lay in deep darkness. Gloom, as Isaiah says. The world lay in deep gloom. And into that darkness, 
comes the great light, right? Into that despair comes the great hope. The Son of God comes to bring the dawning of salvation. And here, in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, we see this. His genealogy is rife with loss, and it's brimming over. It's spilling over with, with new life. If we have the eyes to see it and the, the ears to hear it, this genealogy teaches us that out of loss... God brings new life. Now this is the beautiful truth that we're going to meditate on throughout the, the, weeks, the weeks ahead. And I imagine if you're anything like me or if you're anything like the person that's sitting in the pews next to you, you've experienced all sorts of loss over the last months, over the last couple of years now. Something is no longer what it once was. There's a sadness to that statement. Something is no longer what it once was. Nothing will be as it is right now. There's, there's change that comes. And, and it's, it's, this season's been um, a lot more difficult than past years because the frequency of loss seems higher and the breadth seems wider, right? It seems to be coming in, in clusters, now, the genealogy here is important as it shows how God the Father has shaped history. He's shaped history for the coming of His Son by the power of His Spirit to bring redemption and to heal and restore and to, to regarden the world, so to speak. And this history that leads to Jesus is broken into three movements here by Matthew that shows a master pattern of the Master. The master, our, our God, has a, he has a pattern, a, a way of doing things, a way of bringing life out of loss. He has an MO, so to speak, and we're going to see that here. So he breaks this up into three pieces. And those pieces are from Abraham to David, Solomon to the exile, and then out of exile to Jesus. And each one of these chunks has 14 generations. So he organizes this thing to show us that there is a pattern, there is a movement God has first done something wonderful. He took Abraham out of darkness and he leads it up to this guy named David and installs David in, into uh, the, the world of, of his people there. And he becomes the king over the, the glorious age, so to speak, of Israel. God builds up a glorious kingdom. This really good thing happens. Then we move from Solomon to exile. And this is where we start spiraling and circling the drain. The kingdom collapses because of sin, because of the ruin that, that, that people have wrought on earth, right? The, the kingdom collapses and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper down, spirals into exile and death. But then out of that death comes a turn, comes a movement, comes an ascendancy, and we go up. Out of exile comes the king of victory. So you can say there is an upward V shape to the story, an ascendant V or kind of a flying V where, where it's uneven. The end is better than the beginning and somehow worth all the mess that's in the middle. God does something good. People run it into the ground and ruin it in sin and selfishness. Then God brings redemption from that ruin. And again, it ends better than it begins. Out of catastrophic loss, he brings new life. And that's the big picture of the history of Israel. That God brings beauty out of the ashes. That this God is a resurrection God. He writes comedies, not tragedies. And I mean that in the classic sense, not the sitcom sense, but the classic sense in which bad things happen, but there is an upward turn and it leads to a feasting and it leads to laughter and it leads to a marriage feast. 
God writes comedies, not tragedies. And the big shape of this story points us to Jesus and the shape of his story. God does something good. He brings the king into the darkness. The king is rejected. He goes down, down and down into death, and then he rises to save the world. Do you see the pattern of redemption, the downward then upward movement, kind of a downward rising, so to speak? It's the shape of an upward V. Out of loss comes new life. And by the way, I thought I'd, I would just um, give a quick excursus. Our logo is what it is because of this master pattern of the history of redemption. It's not just a V. Can you see the V there? See how that right side of it? Um, well, your left. There we go. Your, that left side of it is lower. There's a, there's a definitive starting point. It's a broken V. There's a pivot and it ends uh, going higher, going on and on and on forever and ever. This is the arc of redemption. That God does something good, but because of sin and the brokenness of the world, we go down into death. But there is a pivot. There is a point in history where God enters in, turns the whole thing around, and shoots us upwards towards eternity, towards his glory. And it's all set within the context of his triune nature, those three pieces of the eternal circle. God has always been. He draws us into his life. And our end is better than the beginning, and it is worth all of the mess in the middle. That's why our logo is what it is, by the way. So when you see that V, I pray from this point forward, you see the pattern of redemption. You see resurrection life. Our lives should be an example of that resurrection life. Okay, with that said, let's zoom in here. Let's see how this is at play in the lives of those in the genealogy. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that word genealogy is actually the word Genesis, the book of the Genesis. It's, all, it's like Matthew is calling back to the very beginning of all history and saying, actually, here is where true history begins, right? In the person of Jesus Christ. And Matthew wants us to see that, that the Christmas story uh, and, the, and the life of Jesus is all to be seen through the lens of the Old Testament. It doesn't just, you know, pop out of nowhere. There's context, there's, there's history, and to really understand Christmas, we need to understand the whole flow of the Old Testament. And he wants us to see the Old Testament primarily um, in regards to the life of Abraham and David. Now, not everyone knows these characters really well. Um, some, some of us do. If you're new to church, maybe you've heard their names. I will do a little explaining along the way as best as I can. Um, but Abraham and David are key figures in the life of the history of Israel, and they are part of the family of Jesus Christ. And they're key figures because God has made covenants with them. And a covenant is just, it's a a divine promise that God has promised to do something for them or through them by his his power. God has promised to do something through them and their families. Abraham. God has promised that he would bless the world through Abraham's family. David. God has promised that through David would come a king, the son of David, would sit on the throne forever and rule and reign as a good and just king. Jesus, these come into flesh. Jesus is that good and forever king that will sit on the throne of the cosmos, rule with justice, righteousness, and mercy, and through him all the, all the world will be blessed. Abraham promises 
David promises come to flesh in Jesus Christ. And then it gets even cooler than that, which you don't have time for all this, but it gets even cooler than that because who is the promised son of Abraham? Isaac. Isaac is the promised son of Abraham, the son who was to be sacrificed up on the mountain yet lived, the sacrificed son who somehow lived, who was the son of David who ruled and reigned over Israel, Solomon, the wise king, the temple builder. All these threads come colliding together in Jesus. Christmas brings these things together. Jesus is the forever king that brings blessing to the entire world. He is wisdom in the flesh. He is the temple in the flesh that is building his temple, the people of God. And he is a sacrificed son who would live. All those stories point us to Jesus. So, let's talk about life out of loss in the very stories, in these names of Abraham, David, Isaac, and Solomon for a few moments. Abraham, he knew loss. He knew loss. He was living nice and comfortably in Ur the Chaldees, kind of over in Babylon, over Iran, Iraq, over there in in the east. He was living comfortably. And what does God do? God comes and makes a mess of it all. God comes and disrupts his life. I feel like God disrupts our life more than we like to admit. He comes and he enters into our comfort and he upsets things to see us grow. He comes in and says, Abraham, up and out, move. It's time to go. Leave it all behind. I have something for you. I will tell you where, but just go, but leave it all behind. Your home, your business, your family, your local context that you know so well, the local food that you love. Get up, get out of here, go to another land, I will bless you. Now imagine the loss that Abraham incurs at that point. He's losing everything, his old life gone. Like many of us this last year, he knows what it is like to have a whole way of life lost, to lose a place that you know so well. Some of you watching online, some of you have been in VCC for years, you're living in some other state. You know what it's like to pick up. You know what it's like to move and to lose a community. You know what it's like to lose family and friendships. Abraham knew what it was like to lose family and friendships to the long miles between. But God has initiated all that loss to bring blessing to Abraham, right? To bring new life. As Abraham trusts God, God brings blessing. And it's not just blessing for him and Sarah. It is actually blessing that will be centrifugal. It'll radiate. It'll go out to the entire world. The entire world will be blessed through this avenue, through this venue of loss in the life of Abraham and Sarah. Now there's all sorts of loss in the life of Abraham and Sarah. We can't look at it all. They knew the loss of a dream. They knew the pains of infertility, like so many in this congregation. But out of that loss of not being able to have children as a young couple comes the miracle of God giving them the child of promise, Isaac, who would be a forebear and a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. And think of that big traumatic moment of loss that bears new life. Abraham told to sacrifice the promised son that he waited all this time for. In fear and trembling, Abraham goes up the mountain with Isaac. They're carrying the fire. They're carrying the knife. 
there carrying the wood. He's functionally lost his son at this point. And yet he gets his son back. And he walks down the mountain with him. In fact, he told his servants, wait here, we will be back. He had faith that somehow God would have resurrection life on display through the whole deal. And he gets a whole new vision of the grandeur and the glory of God to resolve the pain and the challenges that we face in this life. He has a whole new vision of God. And we, and people for thousands of years now, get a foreshadow of what God would do in Jesus Christ as he would go up Mount Moriah and die, but rise again and bring new life to everyone. Let's talk about King David. He knew loss. He knew the, the descent of that V and then the turn and then the, the ascending side of that V. He knew loss. He knew new life. God did something amazing. In a time where the people needed a, a good king, God calls a shepherd boy from Nowheresville, right? Brings him out. He anoints him to be the king. Aha, you know, the heroes come. But then what? He's rejected, he's hunted. He becomes target practice for Saul, his mentor, and then becomes public enemy number one. He's in exile. He lives on the run. He lives out in the desert in the wasteland, downward slope of that V. He knows its sharp decline. He lost his mentor. He lost relationship with family and friends. He lost his reputation. He certainly lost his safety. I imagine he lost a few pounds out there in the, in the desert. But out of this flood of loss, what does God bring? New life. He trains this young man to be a king who would depend upon him. He draws out psalms, songs, poems from his suffering that would become songs of praise for millions of people, for us that we're reading daily, that encourage us <clears throat> to love and to trust God, he brings life out of that heartache. He's harvested those tears. He builds a kingdom on earth that reaches glorious heights. The kingdom of David in Israel, <clears throat> known all around the world. Now, <clears throat> as with Abraham, there's so much more loss and then rising to new life in the story of David. I mean, God blesses David. He puts him up on the throne but then David does what we do. Right? He falls. He bites it hard. <laughs> he sins deeply. He sexually assaults another man's wife. He murders that man. He lies about it. He brings devastation to himself, to Bathsheba, her family. Their child dies. Incalculable loss. Steep decline. Right into that, that acute angle of the V there. Yet from this loss comes the child Solomon, the king of wisdom, another forebearer of Jesus, right? The temple builder. There is more loss and new life in today's passage than just what I went through. There's so much. This genealogy holds so many treasures. It's like this treasure trove of gospel truths. So, Question for you now, as, as we transition from David and, and Abraham and Solomon and Isaac now onwards, 
what is weird about this ancient, geology, ancient genealogy? What's really strange about it? Go ahead and go to the next slide. This, this might help us out. What's in here that's really bizarre for an ancient genealogy? Women. Gentile women. There are four women mentioned here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Bathsheba, by the way, is the wife of Uriah. Not only is their presence in this genealogy really surprising because they're women, but they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're outsiders. This is a big deal because typically ancient genealogies like this were written to highlight one's pedigree by showing their their ethnic or their cultural or their moral purity. And this happens. This is so cool. See, Tamar was a Canaanite. So was Rahab. She lived in the big bad city of Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite, longtime rivals of God's people. They just could not get along. Bathsheba was a Hittite, at least by marriage, to Uriah. Each one of these women knew great loss. Tamar knew loss. She lost a few husbands, so to speak, and was left childless. She lost relationship with her father-in-law, Judah, who treated her terribly, yet God would grant her twins, as we read here in the genealogy, through a bizarre HBO miniseries-like story, which I'm not going to get into today, but a story that would lead to one of her kids being the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa of Jesus. Not only did she have one kid, she had two kids. She had twins. God brought new life out of her loss. Rahab knew loss. She lived in Jericho. (laughs) Need I say more? Her whole city was destroyed. She lost her home. She lost her friends. Yet because she trusted in this Yahweh, this God of the Israelites, out of the rubble of her life came a whole new way of being, following the true God, being um, someone of the covenant faith, The promises of God would come to her. She gained a husband. She gained a family and a place in the story of the history of the redemption of the world. And she would become a great, 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 great grandma of Jesus. How about Ruth? Do you think she encountered any loss? Her husband died. A number of her family members died. She left home, the land of her birth, Moab. She left everything she knew to go be a beggar in a foreign land because she loved her mother-in-law, Naomi. She gave up life, so to speak, to give life to somebody else. And then God, in his faithfulness, he provides resources to her. He gives her an amazing husband named Boaz. He gives them a child. She becomes Great-grandma to King David and a forebear of Jesus. And, and then she becomes a source of joy and hope to Naomi, who had become bitter. The end of her story far surpasses its beginning. Bathsheba, she knew loss. And like many of you, She knew trauma. She knew sexual assault. The numbers on sexual assault are staggering. And um, our room represents those. Bathsheba knew loss. 
her husband was murdered. She lost a child. And from this pain, God brings King Solomon, the wise king of Israel through whom we have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And Bathsheba is counted among the family of Jesus. She's a key part of the story of redemption. She's not written off because of what has happened to her. She is written into the story. She is seen and she is heard. By the way, none of of this upturn is meant to minimize any of the grief, to wipe away any of, of the trauma or pretend like the suffering didn't happen. God doesn't pretend like those things don't happen at all. It's acknowledged, it's written down, it's not whitewashed. Yet, out of those ashes, he brings new life. So friends, like those in the genealogy of loss, we are no strangers to loss, are we? And I don't know what it is exactly that you have been facing, I can guess. I mean, I know some of you specifically because we've, we've talked about it. And we've shared our stories. We've, we've cried over these things. But I can guess um, what some of the loss is in your life. And the likelihood is that when, when we are in the thick of the loss, when we are in the, the deep gloom of it all, when we're on that downward slope, I mean, we're moving fast sometimes, and it's hard to see the upturn, right? We lose sight of the shape of the overall story, right? We lose, we lose perspective. Pain tends to do that, right? Pain tends to pull our perspective in, and we start to look, you know, down and kind of become navel gazers, so to speak. It just curls us up, and we can't see the bigger picture. It's hard to see in that moment that out of loss, he's going to bring new life. Yeah, this is one of the deep and glorious truths of Christmas, isn't it? That out of loss, he brings new life. This is that implicit and explicit hope that we feed on during Christmas. This is the implicit hope that those who don't know Jesus get glimmers of throughout the the bright lights and the cheer of the season. This is what Isaiah prophesied in one of the great Christmas prophecies. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 through 2. Let's look at Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2 here for a moment. He says, now keep in mind, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. Here's what the prophet says. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. He's talking about Israel and there's layers to that, but he's talking about Israel in general. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, in years past, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where's Jesus from? Galilee, okay. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In other words, out of loss comes new life. See, God's people experienced great death. They experienced trauma. They experienced destruction, exile, and deportation. And what he's talking about here in this verse, when he's talking about the former time, you know, that uh, she, this, this one, was brought into the land, or brought into contempt in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, what that means is that the upper part of Israel was, was first taken over by Assyria and entered into brokenness and sadness and exile. And what he's saying is, 
is where, where the brokenness started, that's where the light will first shine. In the northern part of Israel, when death and dis- where death and destruction came, that is where Jesus first will arise. That is where salvation will come. In the deepest part of the darkness of life, that's where the, sa- the, the Savior enters into to bring light. Isn't that cool? Not like, he's not like out here, kind of like, this is the good stuff, and then maybe eventually he'll work his way into the middle of your mess. Right into the middle, into the deepest, darkest part of whatever we're facing, that's where he goes first. He dives right into it. And then he brings life. He brings life. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What brings the new life? What transitions the loss into new life? It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just people working really hard to, to make a better government or to, to make uh, a better uh, moral structure in their family life. It's, it's none of those things. It's God's presence with his people. God's presence with his people is what converts loss to new life. And see, what God did at the macro or the national level with Israel, you know, the down and then the, the turn and then the up with, with the Messiah, the hero, what God does at that big level, he does with each one of us individually. He comes down into our darkness to be with us, entering into those deepest, darkest parts of our story. He comes to illumine our gloom comes to take us out of the exile that we have known. He comes to heal us. And how does he do it? Through his own, through his own shape of story, right? Through his own upward V. Christmas, God has entered into history. He's done something good, something amazing, something long promised. But then he's immediately chased. He's immediately a refugee. He's immediately hunted, just like King David was. And now he's on the run. And then later in life, he goes down, down, down into the cross, into the tomb, and then he breaks forth, and he goes up, 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 and ascends as the cosmic king over all history. He makes things better than they ever were before. Eden 2.0 is way better than Eden 1.0. It's way better. He brings us with him. He unites us to him by by the power of his spirit. He draws us into the very life of God. He trades our ashes for beauty. The story's end is better than its beginning. And it is worth all the mess in the middle. And Christmas tells us in luminous fashion that loss does not get the final word. And right now some of us feel like loss is getting the final word. If we're honest. And I gotta be honest with you, like, I just, the losses that keep coming my way through 
the church family, through friends, through news in the fam- my own personal family, some nights when I'm tired, I just feel like loss is getting the final word. Mar- Marla and I were talking about this the other night, and then that's when I had to preach this to myself at 9.30 at night going, <laughs> but he has new life rising out of this. And I'm tired and I'm not seeing it right now, but he has new life. And it's the same for you. He has new life rising out of those ashes. In Christ, the loss is a medium of new life. It becomes a passage, not a dead end, a U-turn, not a cul-de-sac. What is this new life that he's bringing out of your loss? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He knows. But I do know he is able to turn a torture device and a tomb and a death into the joyous victory that has changed all of eternity. So I need to believe that he can do something glorious with whatever it is that I'm facing and whatever it is that you're facing. So what do we do with the losses that we're facing? How do we process this in a healthy way this Christmas season? Uh, so a couple things, maybe some practices to help us think through um, the, the loss, to process these things, and to really um, feast on the joy that, that he's bringing to us this season. So here are four, four things that I thought might help us process all this. First is, let's not pretend like we don't have loss. Let's not come in here and be like, how's it going? You're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Things are fine, you know? You're like, you're like Olaf in Frozen 2 where everything's falling apart and he's like, I'm fine. Totally fine. No. You're hurting. And it's okay. You know, this is a safe place. This community is a place where we can actually say, you know what? Um, I need something. This is hard. Can't do this on my own. If we can't be that kind of community, then we are not a Christ-centered community. Because it's in Christ that we are allowed to be vulnerable and it is in Christ that there is hope. Right? We don't just sit in it wallowing. There's, we grieve, but he moves us forward. So grieve Godward. Offer your tears to the God who has also suffered loss. He has suffered loss. He knows what it's like. Second, look again at the gospel. I mean, we need to do this daily. Consider the new life that has come out of the catastrophic loss of the cross. If you feel like there's no way that this thing that I'm in can turn out to something good, we have lost the vision or the paradigm of the cross that says out of the darkest thing, God could bring the greatest light. We need to reframe how we see our troubles through the lens of the cross. Preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Husbands, preach the gospel to your wives. Wives, preach the gospel to your husbands. Parents, preach the gospel to your kids. Help them look at all of life through this movement of how God redeems and restores. Third, remember and take heart. Recall a cross-shaped movement in your own story in which new life emerged from loss. Think about your own story. 
Think about the time where you thought everything was falling apart because the job of your dreams, you know, you were let go from and you thought it was all over only to find out three weeks later that that company was about to tank and go into legal stuff and God has provided a new way for you with a a job that you love. Have you ever had an experience like that? Where God has done something and you're like, I couldn't see that. The reason why I say to look back on that is, is to remember that he has shown up in your life. And we're so often distracted by current pain that we can't remember that he has brought us through and we need to recall he's faithful. Rehearse those things, right? Rehearse what he has done in your life. Um, it will help reshape how we deal with current struggles. And then, and then fourth, <clears throat> excuse me, Look for signs of new life. Proactively look for signs of new life. Where there is loss, he will bring new life. But proactively look for those signs and help your friends, help your family look for those signs as well. Advent is for seeing yet again that out of loss, God brings new life. So let us meditate on this truth the next four weeks to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas, to prepare our hearts for the arrival of King Jesus, to celebrate the good news, to celebrate the good news that loss doesn't get the last word, to celebrate the truth that Narnia has gifted us with, that it will not always be winter and never Christmas. So hold on to this truth. Let every Christmas light you see this year remind you that out of loss, help me out here, God brings new life. You know, in closing, I couldn't help but to think of this headline from the Washington Post. This is from last year on November 24th. The headline read, It's dark outside. Families are putting up Christmas lights early to offset the gloom. I mean, there's so much we could say about that headline. The article goes on to say, there are health benefits to putting up lights early too, you know. Holiday lights and decorations can help bolster people's moods and fend off seasonal depression, said Kristen Carpenter, chief psychologist of Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. In many cases, Carpenter said, holiday lights remind people of their families and childhood experiences celebrating holidays. Okay. There's nothing new here. Rather, this article comes quite late to a merry party that's been going on for 2,000 years. And this is why the church, for 2,000 years, has acknowledged, yeah, it's dark outside. It's called sin in a broken world. But it's why the church has entered into spaces like this, has entered into a sacred season of holy reflection, a sacred time of Advent, gathering together, lighting candles, singing songs, proclaiming the good news, the good news that God is with us, that he has brought light to the gloom. The good news that out of loss, God brings new life. And so may this hope brighten this hard year's Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your love and your grace. Uh, I thank you so much uh, that we get to come as brothers and sisters into this place today uh, to praise you, to, to think upon God, 
come as a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. It's just incredible that you would enter in and you would redeem it from the inside out. So thank you for the good news of the gospel. And Lord, I pray um, that as we walk out of here today, there is a, a new buoyancy in our souls as we acknowledge the truth that no matter what loss we have faced or will face, you can turn that, you can pivot that, and you can lift us up into a place of new life. Whatever seed was split open, you can bring a harvest of hope and joy and peace. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence. That works that miracle. We love you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.